0: The CNBC app. Global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalised alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. The accelerating loss of confidence and the escalation over the last few days have made it clear that Credit Suisse can no longer exist in its current form. A very good morning, everybody. I'm Jeff Cutmore in Zurich. You've got Karen and Steve in London. Let's get into your headlines this hour. So an historic deal for Switzerland, for the banking sector, for financial markets globally, as UBS agrees to buy Credit Suisse for $3.2 billion. The Swiss authorities say this was a desperately needed deal to prevent the collapse of Switzerland's second-largest lender.
1: It was no longer possible to restore the necessary confidence and that a swift and stabilizing solution was absolutely necessary. This solution is the takeover of Credit Suisse by UBS.
0: Now this deal has significant consequences for equity and bondholders in Credit Suisse. Additional tier one bondholders will be wiped out by this deal. UBS to absorb over five billion dollars worth of losses. The UBS chairman says though this is a deal that can be done. Let me be very specific on this.
2: UBS intends to downsize Credit Suisse's investment banking business and align it with our conservative risk culture.
3: The world's leading central banks announcing fresh liquidity measures to stem further financial fallout. Despite this though, Asian equities trading lower across the board and futures are mixed on both sides of the Atlantic.
4: The future of First Republic hangs in the balance after S&P cuts the beleaguered lender's rating to junk status and warns its recent $30 billion emergency deal may not be enough to keep it afloat.
3: Morning, everybody. Good morning, Karen. Good morning. What a weekend, another seismic weekend to match those that we spent so much time looking at 2008, 2009, 2010. So let's go through the details for you all. UBS has agreed to buy rival Credit Suisse for three billion Swissy. The historic deal, a historic deal, came late Sunday after a weekend of negotiations brokered by Swiss regulators to help safeguard the country's banking system. As part of the all-share deal, the Swiss National Bank has provided 100 billion francs of liquidity assurances to to UBS, in addition to the Swiss government granting a 9 billion Swiss franc guarantee for potential loan losses. That's after UBS uh, would have lost about 5 billion themselves, if indeed that were to transpire. UBS's chairman said he would shrink Credit Suisse's investment business, banking business, to align it with UBS's conservative risk culture. Separately, the regulator, Finma, said about 16 billion francs of Credit Suisse bonds will now become worthless. These are AT1. There's a lot of talk about these AT1 bonds and about what they are, a form of cocoa as well. uh, And they will become worthless now. And that's to ensure that private investors help shoulder the cost. It's also actually to shore up the capital position over at Credit Suisse Um, in in terms of giving uh, an enhanced sweetness, shall we say, uh, to UBS on the deal. Now, the executive branch of Switzerland's uh, government passed an emergency ordinance uh, allowing the merger to go through without shareholder approval. Now, just very briefly, ladies and gentlemen, without shareholder approval means that Qatar, means that Saudi that own roughly 17% in terms of equity, they won't get a say in this, on the huge losses they will incur on this deal. That's quite significant. We'll talk about that in coming days and weeks. Now, speaking about the deal Sunday night, the Swiss President Alain Bessette uh, called it a necessity for financial stability. This is a very far-reaching announcement for private individuals and businesses that need this liquidity and access to the banking system. It's obviously one of great breadth for the stability of international finance. An uncontrolled collapse of Credit Suisse would
0: lead to incalculable consequences for the country and the international financial system.
4: A series of setbacks and failures at Credit Suisse saw shares sink more than 70% over the past year, putting the troubled lender's market cap at just $8 billion as of Friday's close. That figure pales in comparison to UBS's roughly $57 billion market cap. UBS made $7.6 billion in profit last year. Compare that with Credit Suisse's $7.9 billion loss. But possibly just worth pointing out, don't forget UBS was the bank that was bailed out back in 2008. It wasn't Credit Suisse, so the change in fortunes of a decade plus just worth bearing in mind. Now, Switzerland's finance minister insisted the government broker deal is not a bailout, but a commercial solution, and one necessary to stop contagion risk to the broader financial market the bankruptcy of Credit Suisse would have had a collateral damage, a huge collateral damage on the Swiss financial market, also a risk of contagion for UBS and other banks, and also internationally.
2: We should not forget that we have a very fragile market environment at this point. Mm -hmm. So going into resolution would be anything else but uh, helpful in, under those circumstances. So this is, is a private uh, sector solution with limited state intervention, but exactly what is necessary in order to avoid uh, turbulences at the turbulences in, in this fragile market environment.
4: Jeff is in Switzerland for us. And Jeff, as we rounded out last week, we had this big lifeline for Credit Suisse, the 50 billion. But it wasn't enough, it seems. And one of the caveats that some of the analysts said was that if the outflows had continued, then the lifeline would not necessarily be enough. It seems as though the events over the weekend have moved very swiftly in fears around contagion being stemmed by authorities there in Switzerland.
0: Karen, banking is all about confidence, I think we all understand that and the minute that confidence is shattered by the size of those outflows and questions continue to be asked about the restructuring programme that successive waves of managers at Credit Suisse had proposed. when the questions were still being asked and the answers weren't forthcoming i think quite understandable that a lot of depositors a lot of those who have banked with Credit Suisse for decades, families that have had their money within this organisation for decades were beginning to finally lose patience with management and I think as we talked about this story when I was here just going into the weekend I think we all understood that there hadn't been a final chapter written on this story and to be quite honest there still won't be one written for some time because even though most of the important parts of this deal have now been announced and have been set in place and we understand the 59% haircut ultimately that the equity holders are going to take here and the significant write-off that's going to happen to a lot of the debt holders in the current credit structure. I think as all of that's um, currently running its course we also understand that there is the risk of further outflow for those who decide that ultimately they don't want to be parked in a Swiss bank. The reputational damage that will have been taken here by the Swiss banking system may deter some of those newly wealthy in Asia from putting their money into UBS or keeping it within Credit Suisse to be taken over by UBS. So there are still a lot of of potential ramifications of this deal that may not be wholly positive. But we will have to wait and watch. The other important issue, of course, as we go down the road, is how UBS retains some of the key talent to make sure that this merger happens in a relatively smooth way. I say merger, obviously it's a a takeover, but there will be a merging of business units where there is significant overlap. So there'll be a lot of those 50,000 employees around the world this morning who will be hoping to see some very quick reassurance from their line managers about their jobs and about whether they ultimately are going to stay with the organisation. So, as we watch ultimately this story run its course, there are still many unanswered questions about the... the the, the combined business going forward, although obviously this looks like a a significant deal for UBS, a win which will um, enhance its own book value by some 74% here. So the causes, well, you're going to get a lot of finger pointing here in Switzerland. There are a lot of citizens who are very unhappy with the successive series of managers at Credit Suisse who failed to uh, turn around the, uh, the losses, failed to stem the outflows of cash. Axel Lehman pointing the finger at the recent tremors in the US banking market. I think a lot of people understand it goes a lot deeper than that. But let's hear what the outgoing Credit Suisse chairman had to say. The latest developments that emanated from the banks in the US hit us at the most unfavorable moment. One time, like last year, we were able to overcome the deep market uncertainty, but not this second time. The accelerating loss of confidence and the escalation over the last few days have made it clear that Credit Suisse can no longer exist in its current form. We are happy to have found a solution, which I'm convinced will bring lasting stability and security for clients, staff, financial markets and to Switzerland. You remember, we talked a lot last week about the speculation of a deal that would involve uh, UBS alone. And UBS and both uh, UBS and Credit Suisse were saying, no, we're not interested in some government orchestrated deal. But ultimately, we know this deal was done. It's an all share transaction, which will, I guess, please uh, UBS equity holders at least. And there are significant government backstops here in excess of uh, $110 billion to make sure that there is sufficient handholding for UBS to give it comfort that this transaction can be completed without any significant punishment to existing equity and bondholders in the bank. Let's hear how uh, Mr. Kelleher, the chairman over at UBS, described the deal for UBS. Let me be very specific on this. UBS intends to downsize Credit Suisse's
2: investment banking business and align it with our conservative risk culture. It is intended that the combined investment banking businesses will over time account for no more than 25 percent of the group's risk-weighted assets. UBS's strength and our familiarity with Credit Suisse's business puts us in a unique position to execute this integration efficiently and effectively with swiss and international clients best interest in mind.
0: Yeah, so um, I guess I guess that raises some interesting uh, issues as to what happens to uh, credit Suisse first boston, the spin out brand that credit Suisse effectively paid Michael Klein to take over, we'll have to watch that story particularly closely because I think it'll be all about the details of how that scaling down happens, in part, of course, already started by the spin-off of the boutique investment banking business. but. There will be more to be written on that particular story. Steve, Karen?
3: Uh, Jeff, stay with us. We've got a great guest in the studio already who's been investing in banks for over 10 years. A couple of comments from the Swiss Banking Personnel Association. And look, let's be totally blunt about it. There will be a lot of job losses in London, at Canary Wharf, and of course in Zurich and elsewhere. Uh, But they are saying this morning, Credit Suisse takeover has left us deeply shocked. Uh, The Swiss uh, Banking Personnel Association says many jobs are at stake following the takeover. Uh, We are in contact with management at Credit Suisse and UBS. Uh, UBS must keep job losses to a minimum. Well... That's what they say. UBS will want to make the best situation uh, of this. Let's get to James Sim, who is head of equities at uh, River and Mercantile. James, and I'll just get full disclosure. You do not own uh, either of the stocks. You do not have family ownership of either stock, but uh, one of your colleagues does own UBS as part of a portfolio. Right? Right. OK, let's move on then. Um, Look, there's a very easy question to start off with. Um, You're a long-term investor in banks. What are the ramifications of this deal? Good morning to you, sir.
1: Good morning, Steve. Look, I mean, the market's in seek and destroy mode, isn't it? And, uh, you know, the issue here is that the, the, the bankers, the central bankers, need to get a firebreak ahead of, ahead of the market. Is this enough? I'm not sure it is, actually. I mean, this solves what I think is probably an idiosyncratic problem at Credit Suisse, but I'm not sure it's a, a fire break big enough to, to, to stop the rot for the market. Let's just
4: get into that. I mean, we're talking yeah. about a storied institution here in Switzerland, but one that became really scandal clad and with lots of stories written about it in recent years. Uh, I think that many are stepping back and saying, were well, the problems just too great to fix? Was it a matter of timing because we saw this banking contagion risk start to unfold? Do you think that the problems were really of Credit Suisse's making? Or is there something more here when we talk about now what's happened with COCOs, the, these bond instruments, the fact that investors have been hunting from one bank to the next looking for weakness at this stage?
1: Yeah, I, th- I think for the m- most of it, it's, it's idiosyncratic idiosyncr- for, for Credit Suisse. I mean, this is a, a bank that was making sort of mid-twenties billion revenue per quarter as a run rate. Uh, last quarter was making 11 billion and over that period costs have gone up, not down. So I, I think that's the, the key issue here. Um, The the rest of the European banking system is much more robust than it it used to be, that's pretty clear. In terms of the AT1s, it's interesting. I mean, I think a lot of people will have taken a a sharp intake of breath when they saw the the, the, the mezzanine debt wiped out, as it were, uh, but equity not. Now, if you look at the details of the AT1 bonds that they've wiped out, it's very explicit that, particularly in the case of government intervention, that is possible and, in fact, quite likely to happen. So I, It's a trigger
3: event,
4: right? That's
1: right, exactly. So I think it's a case of caveat emptor on that one.
3: Um, James, obviously, uh, Jeff's been leading our coverage on this and it's out in Zurich uh, once again and has got a, a couple of points for you. James.
0: Yeah, good morning, James. Uh, ironically, I, I want to sort of widen out the view here because I'm intrigued by the point that you're making where you suggest perhaps this won't bring stability to the market in the way that the regulators would like. And let's face it, they all rushed out in a coordinated fashion to say how much they welcomed this deal and how important it would be. But at the same time, we got this very interesting announcement overnight as well about swap agreements, which again suggests that perhaps there are some problems, some ripples emanating from the dollar market that imply that um, people are finding it difficult to get dollars to settle trade. The increase in interest rates is increasingly tightened up liquidity in the global economy. This implies, I think, that the authorities are concerned about what is going on below the surface here. I'd I'd be very interested in your broader take and what ultimately you may think this now means for where we are on interest rates and what we may now see in terms of central banks injecting liquidity back into the system
1: rather than trying to extract it. Yeah, I mean, look, the big picture from the Fed's point of view, isn't it, is that it's it's pumped in around 700 uh, 700 trillion uh, over the uh, 700 billion, sorry, over recent months. And and that's really started to come down with QT. I think incrementally, this is pretty obviously going to slow that. And and as you say, there has been incremental liquidity added back in. Um, Inflation is coming down. uh, And it's coming down quite quickly. Uh, If you look at the lead indicators, that's pretty obvious. So I, I, I think this just adds to that. And and, and we say, you know, we're somewhere at peak inflation, peak interest rate fears now. And and that's probably ultimately what will stop the rot. But I think this deal specifically probably isn't a big enough firebreak to do that.
3: Um, And that's all very fascinating as well. So it's not a big enough firebreak to end systemic concerns or end individual bank concerns. Well, so uh, I'm not looking to um, sensationalise anything, but it is our job to ask you which other banks you feel are potentially at risk. And with that, I'll ask you what your positioning is as well.
1: Yes, yeah, so a bank I don't own uh, would be something like a Deutsche Bank, you know, a
3: very... Which com- has made a lot of progress on its recovery uh, under Herr Dr Christian Saving, and
1: yet... And, and yes, it's still got a very large derivatives book linked to the investment bank. And, and I think that's the issue here. It's, it's the uncertainty the market doesn't like. What I think isn't going to spread, where, where, where it will stop this time, because we have got much better resolution tools in Europe, where it will stop is with the wider banking system. So, as I say, it's, it's a seek and destroy mode from the market. It's picking off individual banks. But I, I don't think it becomes systemic in, in terms of encapsulating every single bank the simple retail banks, you know, they should be fine.
4: It's a good description, isn't it? As we talk about Cocos too, I think Deutsche Bank was the story we first started talking about Cocos a lot in recent years. I want to ask you more about the UBS Credit Suisse deal now because effectively there were hurdles for so many years. I mean, this is not a story, a new story for us in terms of the consolidation. We've been talking about it for a long time. We know they're very motivated parties behind the scenes, but it was a deal that just couldn't get done. Mm. And if we talk about what this means now, you've got this domestic concentration, in Switzerland one major global bank about 30 percent of the domestic banking business now under the UBS Credit Suisse banner uh, internationally you've got uh, a very large bank um, 1.1 trillion in total assets for UBS but uh, businesses stretching across the globe at a time when the American peers have really had the edge so what does it mean for this entity competing globally but also in terms of the domestic concentration?
1: Look, well I listened to the conference call last, last night and the tone struck me um, it was a, a very defensive tone initially from from the uh, from, from the management of, of UBS it's not a deal they wanted to do they were quite explicit about that but as you say you know all the the presentation talking material was actually pointing quite positively so I think you know in the short term the market's not going to like this deal for UBS it's not core to the strategy but I think over the medium term you're right that it does potentially give them an edge to compete globally with the, the Americans and, and really puts them in an unassailable position domestically, you know they've really overtaken Raiffeisen uh, as, as the big domestic bank in, in Switzerland, and that puts them in a good spot.
3: One more for you out of Zurich, Jeff.
0: Yeah, James. Um, to what extent does this give us then a precedent for understanding what any future wind down of a systemically important bank could look like? And I? I, I point in particular to the use of emergency powers by the authorities to take this vote out of the hands of the shareholders. It, it, it sends a very interesting message, I think, to equity owners around the world about what may happen in similar circumstances
1: at other organisations. What do you make of it? I would say that it's been helpful the resolution tools that we've, we've had in place. It has made it easier to do this deal. You know, As, you, as we've pointed out, there's uh, about 15 billion of, of, of uh, additional equity provided by the wipeout of the AT1s. Uh, there's 30 billion in, in, in badwill, which is effectively equity that, that the UBS is getting, plus they're getting another 9 billion of, of guarantees. So there's a huge amount of uh, sort of value that UBS is buying for, for just 3 billion. But it wasn't enough, was it? You know, for all the tools that we had in place, when it came to it, We weren't able to do a fundamental restructuring and resolution of a GCB, a globally systemic bank, uh, without involving uh, a private sector and using uh, central bank fudge factors.
3: James, this is literally a five second answer. Are you buying or selling uh, bank shares this morning if you get an opportunity?
1: I think if they're they're down significantly, I will start to nibble at something and possibly even UBS actually. Do you want
3: to give our viewers a little idea of what you're nibbling at?
1: Uh, I would oh, that just all the trade for you? I, I think that might be a, a little bit uh, close, but uh, you know something like a uh, UBS might, might be interesting oh, if, right. if the shares were down you know, double digit or more.
4: James Sim with us. Thank you very much for joining Thanks, us. Guys. Head of Equities, River and Mercantile. And for more on the coverage uh, from the network of UBS and Credit Suisse and the deal that uh, has transpired, the global banking sector turmoil, along mm. with the impact on markets, there's plenty more online at cnbc.com.
3: Uh, Meanwhile, major central banks have announced a new effort to boost global cash flow and improve U.S. dollar liquidity amongst the uh, ongoing banking sector turmoil. The Fed will now offer daily currency swaps via standing lines, expanding the current weekly options and operations, I beg your pardon, uh, in coordination with the, uh, we've got a lot of acronyms here, uh, ECB, BOE, SMB, BOJ, BOC, that's last is the Bank of Canada. Uh, The daily swaps will begin today and last through the end of April allowing central banks to offer seven-day dollar loans to banks. I have a big question about this and whether um, banks will be more generous or less generous on the back of this, but that's a bigger question and uh, we need to get to the markets.
4: S&P cut its rating for First Republic Bank deeper into junk territory on Sunday, saying the bank's recent $30 billion cash infusion will not solve its liquidity problems. <laughs> S&P slashed its rating three notches to B-plus and said more downgrades are possible amid significant outflows last week. Moody's downgraded First Republic to junk on Friday. I want to take you to U.S. futures because as we wrapped up uh, the trade last week, uh, investors looking to the weekend events around Credit Suisse and, uh, of course, uh, domestic banks in the United States. Significant concerns still, and you can see Dow Jones futures so far 162 down at this early hour and lockstep across the board we are chasing red arrows at this point so let me take you to the market action as we wrapped up that Friday trade you can see again the concentration of selling across on the Dow but all the major industries stepping and lower indices rather stepping lower one percent off the Dow 1.1 down the S&P three quarters of a percent down for the Nasdaq but if you look at the various sectors underlying this, it was, of course, the concentration of selling in the major banks. You saw that in that Friday trade, financials are falling. That was the underperforming part of the market. Technology, though, has been outperforming. And that was not just in the Friday trade. It was over the course of the trading week. So FANG Plus stocks trading up by about 6%. That is up. versus the 12.5% down on the index of banking stocks. So over the course of the week, very different fortunes for quarters of this market. What it meant, uh, given the the dominance of tech to the upside, the Nasdaq actually gained for the trading week with this bank contagion taking place. It was up 4.4% versus what you saw on the Dow, the Dow reversing by just over a tenth of a percent. A lot of the assumptions here really around what it means for monetary policy and just whether the Fed and other central banks can continue on the path of hiking. It is Fed Week this week and the market's still looking for a 25 basis point rate hike, but that 50 basis points has been taken off the table. And of course, question marks over what the trajectory looks like after this if we continue to see financial instability in parts of the market. Let me take you to Asia, wrapping up uh, and uh, picking up on the, the weekend events. It's the market to, to digest the news flow very quickly and you can see as a result, we are trading down. So, despite hopes that some of the the fears out there around banking contagion would be soothed today, you can see Monday trade is weak across Asia. Concentration was selling across the Hong Kong market, 600 plus points to the downside, or three and a quarter percent. There have been uh, lots of fears, and we're talking about this. Investors sort of picking the next area of weakness, and Tokyo stocks have been focused, particularly the banks. There, 1.4 percent down for uh, the overall stock market, the Nikkei 225. Modestly downbeat for China, Australia falling about 1.4%. The big banks, this is how they trade in uh, the Hong Kong uh, market today. You can see HSBC trading down 7%, similar vein too for Standard Chartered. So we are seeing a fairly steep reversal as a result. To the opening calls here in Europe, this is how we're setting up for trade. Keep in mind in that Friday session, it was a very bleak day playing out. We had selling to the tune of about one6 on the Italian market. That was about the worst of it. French stocks down 1.4%. But if you tally up the trading week, we shed about 6.5% on Italian, the Italian stock market, more than 4% on stocks in both Germany and France. So this morning, it does not look as uh, we're done with the red ink. Downbeat right across the board. And you can see, again, the Italian market, one of the weaker ones in the mix. The core market's all called lower at this stage. Stick. Yeah,
3: and just on the FTSE, um, just a little bit of an update. FTSE futures now down 0.6 of 1% according to uh, the Reuters I'm looking at. So just slipping a little bit. Doesn't mean to say there's not gonna find support at some stage, uh, as our last guest was saying, in the right price movement, he's a buyer of certain European equities. Right, coming up on the show, the French President Emmanuel Macron and his government face a no confidence vote after a controversial pension reform Sparks fresh protests over the weekend. We'll have more from our team on the ground in Paris after the break
4: and... For more on Credit Suisse's historic takeover as well as the latest market action, you can check out the Squawk Box podcast.
3: Let's call it how it is. It's been an absolute disastrous investment for Saudi and for Qatar in Credit Suisse, which own a combined just under 17%. So they're updating. And look, it's it's not the money. We know the Saudis have got a few quid here and there. You know, let's be honest about it. They are stunningly, stunningly wealthy and aren't going to notice the billions of uh, Swiss franc loss. But. That said, probably a little bit embarrassing, to be fair, for the investment having lost so much money so quickly. Anyway, Saudi National Bank has updated with regard to its investment in Credit Suisse. Changes in valuation of SMB's investment in Credit Suisse have no impact on SMB's growth plans and forward-looking 2023 guidance. As we say, Saudi is not short of a couple of quid. But in the light of recent market announcement, potential impact to SMB's capital adequacy ratio is circa 35 basis points. And there is the long and the short of it. Financially, it's not going to touch the sides on Saudi, but reputationally, it's not been the best investment.
4: And of course, speaking last week uh, out in, in many public sources, speaking to Hadley as well, and of course, reinforcing the message that they wouldn't be kicking in more money because there are regulatory considerations here. Yeah. So I think uh, it's quite dramatic to see how the events have unfolded for them and worth bearing. Mind just how nimble Harris Associates was, the activist investor who, uh, who got out with some money intact at this point. <laughs> I was See, say, right, uh, it, it's been uh, not uh, a great story uh, for anybody. I would argue that you know, Harris have
3: lost vast amounts more than Saudi have lost on this investment.
4: Something versus zero at this point uh, yeah. is an outcome, isn't Tenly. it? Uh, Let's push on. Uh, French President Emmanuel Macron faces a critical moment of his presidency, with the French parliament voting on no-confidence motions later today. It comes after his government pushed through a controversial pension reform which angered lawmakers and triggered protests across the country. Charlotte uh, has been in Paris for us and uh, standing by for us now. Charlotte, let me just get out to you just to flesh out what we've been seeing on the streets over the weekend and just what the ramifications really are for Macron at this point. It seems as though we do have a problem with her line. Uh, The uh, weekend events, I think, just worth bearing in mind because we've been so laser focused on the banking contagion that's been happening. But stability in main economies has been the backdrop of something we've spoken about for many, many years here in Europe. And to see more uh, protests of this nature, where a lot of people across the population are very much against what is a real small tweak to the pension Well, not
3: not to the French people um, who think that they have, and I dare I say it, and again, I love France, I love the French people, I've worked with them many years. But the fact that the French think they've got some exceptionalism that the rest of the Western world can't have, i.e. you can retire at 62, but we have to retire in our late 60s to our early 70s, it's bonkers. The, the French state can't afford it. The public sector can't afford it over longer term. The demographic trends are awful for all of us if we're not going to be working longer as well. I, I'm sorry. I, I, I have empathised for people who've worked their entire working life. I've worked for 35 years solid, but it doesn't stop the fact that my pensions are uh, going to be later. Yeah, but
4: what we're talking about here is not a move towards late 60s or 70 By legislation, 64, 64 moving right, by just two years.
3: crazy right. exceptionalism. Let's but Charlotte it. understands this, doesn't she? Charlotte, I, I, I hear them. They don't want to work longer. But this is the world we all live in. No one's picking on French pensioners.
5: Well, look, just to put it in perspective, that's the minimum age of, of retirement. So that's the age from the, the age that you can start going into retirement that would be moving from 62 to 64. A lot of people don't retire at 62. They actually carry on because you have to do a certain amount of trimesters they need to work to complete in order to get your pension. But certainly they want to raise that minimum age that you can go into retirement. So that's of course, what the government announced last week, uh, and with that bypassing, uh, by, by, bypassing a, a vote in National Assembly because they knew they just did not have enough votes uh, since losing the, the absolute majority uh, in the chamber, so uh, it looks like the discontent, if not the outrage, has continued over the weekend you 've seen the pictures, protests and strikes have continued to carry on. so now today there is vote of no confidence in the national assembly look uh, there's been fourteen votes like this uh, against the Prime Minister Elisabeth Bond so far. So uh, more than any Prime Minister before. But this one is important because this one is the first one that looked like it could have a chance to go through a very small chance, but still one when all the previous one uh, looked like they just didn't have the numbers. So now, once again, if you look all the far left uh, opposition, all the far right, they're about 230, 235 votes. Uh, they're about 30 votes short. So it's all down once again to those centre-right MPs from Les Républicains. Uh, It would mean that about half of them vote in favor of the vote of no confidence for this motion to pass. Um, Mathematically, it looks unlikely. The head of the party said he doesn't want to add chaos to the chaos. He doesn't want to support uh, this vote. But it's very difficult to know whether his MPs will follow. And they are under a lot of pressure. A lot of their officers in their different uh, circumstances across the country have been um, damaged and attacked by some people. They are under pressure. And a lot of them, again, they were the ones that were supposed to support the pension reform. Has historically a party that, su- that supports one and they didn't vote for it in the National Assembly they just didn't want to vote for it so it's, un- it's still a bit of an unknown on whether they will vote against uh, the-, the Prime Minister this time around or not so what happens now? or the motion passes and that means the government falls the Prime Minister has to go with her government and Emmanuel Macron has to name a new government or it fails and that means the government stays in place and the pension reform uh, becomes law but they could still mean there will be a new Prime Minister a lot of people say look in any case Elizabeth Moore would have to go. They need to turn a new page. And Emmanuel Macron is under a lot of pressure. We have to put a new government in place. So still a lot of unknown. this here a lot of uncertainty. Uh, one, show, one thing it shows is that Emmanuel Macron, of course, likes a political gamble. He's done many before. But this one is a very, very big one, the pushing through the patient form, through the assembly without a vote. And uh, there's really very much the present, the ghost of the Gilets Jaunes protest, And they're worried that this could be happening in the weeks ahead. There's still the strikes going on. Refineries are still blocked. There's no Petrol shortages, but they said they could get closer to that. So they're very much watching what's happening on Thursday. There's more strikes and more protests going on because it looks at like the mobilisation is getting tougher and tougher. And it's getting very difficult for the president, Emmanuel Macron, who said he wanted to be a consensual president for his second mandate. It looks like it's not going to be the case at all.
0: Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market moving
3: news, you can head to cnbc.com.